Okay, well, we are now live. So good morning and good evening to those joining us from later in the day. Uh, welcome to the second session of this class for Elul Zaman, Admission of Guilt, Confession, and Repentance with Rabbi David Silber. We are going to be staying in the Chumash, so if you have your own copy that you prefer to use, you are, of course, welcome to do that. Otherwise, I will put links in the chat to direct people to texts on Safaria, and we will also share them on screen. Those of you those of you who are joining us here on Zoom, we do appreciate if you stay muted unless we are having an open discussion period just to minimize background noise. And we really, really love seeing your wonderful faces on camera when you are comfortable sharing that. You are welcome to put questions and comments in the chat at any time. If you are joining us on Facebook Live, please put comments and questions in the comment section below the video. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, Hello. Nice to have you here. So without further ado, Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Okay, just to summarize uh, from last week, we, um, we started with the story of the Garden of Eden, the first, uh, one might say, the first uh, accusation, if that's the right word, of calling the human being to task for having violated God's command. And of course, the story is firstly that the initial earthling, Adam, was commanded not to eat of a particular a fruit of a particular tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil, Eitzadah Tovarah. And uh, then the Torah details after the creation, the second version of the creation of the earthling, the Torah then. Uh, speaks about the command, and then God says, I will fashion a helper, a helpmate for the human. And first, uh, God brings all the various animals to Adam. He doesn't see in them a helpmate, and then God fashions from Adam's side another human. And Adam is very excited about this. So this is the right one. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He calls this Isha. And at the same time, he calls himself Ish. Then in the very next story, we have the introdu introduction to the Nachash, the snake, who speaks to the woman, the woman not having been commanded in the first place, because she was created after the command, and one might say uh, entices her to partake of this forbidden fruit. The, it's not clear in the Torah how much the woman knows. That, For, for example, she certainly knows of the prohibition. Well, she says to the snake that, you know, the snake says, I heard you can't eat any of the fruit. That's in chapter three. And the woman says, no, that's not true. The fruit of the uh, trees of the garden we may eat. Just one particular tree, which she says, the tree in the middle of the garden. It's interesting she doesn't say the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's not clear to me he actually knows this tree as or of this tree as a tree of knowledge and good and evil. She knows of it as the tree in the middle of the garden, as opposed to the other trees. So the snake says to her, well, no, and, the, and because God has said, if you eat of it, you will die. It's not clear whether she sees that as a prohibition or kind of caution, it's dangerous to eat it. The snake says, you won't die, but rather 
God is concerned that you eat of that fruit, you will gain knowledge of good and evil. So it's not clear if he's, a, he's, he's affirming what she already knows or not. That's unclear. And then the Torah says, it's interesting, in the sixth pasuk uh, of chapter three, ha'isha, ki tova machal, ki the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, a delight to the eyes, and desirable as a source of wisdom. And then she partakes of the fruit and she gives it to her husband who was with her, Ima, with her, and he ate as well. Now, what's interesting about this is that, first of all, the focus of the story is actually not just the woman, but what the woman sees. And the woman sees the trees a certain way, having been spoken to or influenced by the snake. And it's actually very striking that the, of the three descriptions of the tree, this particular tree in the middle of the garden, two of those three descriptions we find already about all the trees. God planted in Eden in the second chapter, the Torah in the second chapter spoke of all the trees of the garden. They are Tov and Nechmad. What the Torah did not speak of is, is Haskil, to give you knowledge. But what's interesting is that the Torah subtly speaks of the woman as seeing the trees a certain way, which confirms, for the most part, what we know of all the trees in chapter 2. What's interesting then is that the focus is on, one might say, human imagination. Human imagination. She sort of sees things differently, having been spoken to by this Nachash. And that's the focus. And then she takes up the fruit and she eats it. And she gives Adam the Ish as well. And then we have, and this is what we spoke about last week, we have God. Uh, or the sound of God walking in the garden. And, and the Ish and Isha hide in uh, amongst the trees, the toch. And it sounds like the very place where they wish, from which they ate is where they hide. And God called out to Adam and said, where are you? Ayeto, where are you? And here we have, as we saw last week, we had an opportunity for the human to say, um, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? I was afraid because I was naked. And God asks, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that fruit that I commanded you not to eat of? Emphasis on command. And that was the opportunity to say, yes, I did. I did the wrong thing and I have no excuses. That would have been a satisfactory answer, in which case probably we're still all in the Garden of Eden. But of course, that is not what the human says. Adam says, the woman that you put by my side. So blaming the woman, blaming God, you put her by my side. And even perhaps, I believe it's the Ramban who suggests this saying, well, since you put her by my side, I assume that what she told me to do was actually okay by you, since you put her by my side. So we have a number of excuses, but what we don't have is the statement, I take responsibility for what I did. And then God moves over to the woman. What about you? What have you done? Met a seat. And as we saw last week, 
that those two words, me'osi, that's a phrase that appears and reappears throughout the entire book of Genesis. Over and over again, me'osi, what have you done? To which the woman answers, hanachash hishiani, the snake enticed me, hishiani, of course, playing on the word isha, same way the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, he blames the isha, and she says hishiani. Now, what is interesting is that when God says, what have you done? The question is, what is the question? Is God asking, what have you done? Namely, why did you eat of the fruit of the tree, of the forbidden tree, and you know it's forbidden, even though you weren't directly commanded? Or is God asking more generally, please explain to me all that you did? Because in point of fact, the mistake of the woman is twofold. One is giving him to eat, and one is eating herself. And it's interesting that when God talks about punish, punishment, God talks about both. God says that you will have pain in childbirth, be etzev. But then God also says, as far as the husband, you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. Doesn't mean he will necessarily rule over you. It probably means, but he may rule over you. In other words, in this instance, you convinced him to do something. That will always be the case. Uyim Sholbach could be, possibly, he will have the opportunity to, uh, to rule over you. It reminds me in Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, where he talks about the verse, um, and we'll get to that verse soon, where God speaks to Cain, God speaks to Cain, and God says to Cain, listen, what are you concerned about? God had favored the offering of Hebel, his younger brother, and Cain uh, was very upset. And God said to Cain in chapter four, what's the problem? If you do well, if you do good, you say, let's say you'll be raised up. But if you don't do good, sin crouches at the door. It, presumably sin, desires you. But you, timsholbo. what does timsholbo mean? Islamic has three possibilities. I forget who says what, it's a Chinese philosopher, I think says what he likes, which is, does it mean you will rule over sin? Does it mean uh, you must rule over sin? It's a command. But does it mean you can rule over sin? You have the ability to overcome. I think that's the one that Steinbeck likes. And if we transpose that to here, it means, who Yim Shobach means he can. He will have the opportunity. Don't think when you give him some tea, he's going to eat it. You can just tell him what to do. In the future, everybody can make their own decisions for themselves. That's one possibility. But what's interesting is that in terms of what the punishment that God meets out, you see that what God is focused on is not just her eating, but rather more than that, not just what you did, but your influence upon others. And that's a critical point over here. Because to take responsibility then would have meant to take responsibility for what I do, but also to take responsibility of the impact of what I do has on others. And in fact, when one studies the first chapters of Genesis, which we can do probably our whole lives, um, you realize that in Breshit and beyond, what we do has an impact, and certainly in Genesis, 
not just on myself and other people, but for Bereshit, it has an impact on, on all of existence. In fact, when Adam sins, it's not Adam that's actually cursed. He's punished, but not cursed. But God says the earth is cursed on account of you. So what you do has an impact on your environment, not just on you personally or your community, but on the earth. And that's a critically important point. In this, and we'll see this in a moment in, in, in one story that we did not address last week, which talks about what did you do, a rather important story. And then after we finish with that, I wanted to move on to a couple of uh, other things, then come to the main point about recognition of sin and, and confession, at least within the context of Genesis. But the story in which we have a similar, what did you do? We had jumped to the three stories of Abraham and Isaac and Abimelech and Paro and Judah, etc. But there's another story that we missed, I missed, and that is chapter four, the story of Cain and Hebel, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel's story, as we all know, Cain, uh, brings an offering to God. He brings an offering from the uh, from the uh, from the fruit of the of the field, fruit fruit of the soil. Hevel also brought an offering. He brought from the best choicest parts of the first wings of the flock. Hevel is a is a shepherd, and Cain is works the earth. Oved Adama just as Adam is, Oved Adama, and they both bring gifts to God, but Cain is the first to bring a gift, Hebel also brings a gift. And the Torah said that God turned towards, God's accepted the gift of Hebel, but the gift to Cain, God did not pay heed. And Cain is very distressed, very, when I say angry, he was very angry and his face fell. It's a combination of, of sadness, uh, deep unhappiness and anger, which in the book of Genesis and beyond is an explosive combination. And then God addresses Cain. As I mentioned before, what are you so angry about? What are you so distressed about? Halom Tetiv says, if you do the right thing, heavy transitive is uplift, you'll be lifted up. There are other possible interpretations, but this is good for our purposes. If not, sin crouches at the door, but I taught him Shobo, you can be its master. They agree with the Chinese philosopher, you can be its master. And then we have this strange verse that Cain said something to his brother Hebel. In the field, Cain rose up and killed his brother Hebel. The first murder, fratricide. Now we have God's response. God said to Cain, where is your brother Hebel? Just as God said to Adam, where are you? A question. Here God says to Cain, another question. Where is your brother? And actually earlier, there was another question. After the Cain was upset about not the non-acceptance of the sacrifice, God said, God is asking questions. What are you upset about? Why are you distressed? Here also a question. Where is your brother? God knows. 
the God is waiting for Cain's response. In this case, there is not much to respond. He's not here because I killed him. I'm a murderer. That's the only possible response. But Cain has two other responses. He doesn't say that. His first answer is, I do not know. And then he adds on something else. Hashomer achi anochi. Am I my brother's keeper? And I would emphasize that the in the Bible, anochi means me, I. There's also the word ani, which means I. But the anochi is the emphatic. Am I my brother's keeper? By implication, I'm not the one responsible to watch over my brother, someone else's, namely you. It's your job. What are you asking me? Why are you doing your job to keep over? Kain apparently thinks he can fool God. Of course, he can't. What's interesting here is actually, of course, his excuse is, is false. We know that. God knows that. But it's curious, the very excuse itself is interesting. The excuses that we give are very striking, apart from the fact that in this case, they're not true, but they're also striking in the sense they say something about the one who makes the excuse. So first of all, the first is loyodati. And we can raise the question, is that a good excuse? It's the question till this very day. Is ignorance an excuse? Is ignorance of the law an excuse? It's a wonderful question within the Jewish tradition. Uh, it's a good question. And I would say that generally speaking, it may excuse some behaviors, but it's not an excuse in general. But in this particular case, and this uh, Devore has pointed out in the past, the lawyer dati is very striking given the fact that the human being has knowledge. Because in the story of the Garden of Eden, it's the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which causes us both to get knowledge of all types and ultimately to be banished from a place in which choice is not significant. So the lawyer dati brings hollow because in fact, that's the whole point. You have to know better. And in fact, what Devorah pointed out is that when God spoke to Cain, God said to Cain, what are you concerned about? If you do good, you'll be fine. If you don't do good, you won't be fine. But God never said to Cain, what is good and not good? God presupposes, actually, and the Torah presupposes that the human being more or less can figure out what is good. You can figure it out, and therefore you're held responsible. So if you do good, and you know what that is, you'll be just fine. You'll be uplifted. If not, sin crouches at the door. So the lawyer dati is interesting. And so was the second response. Am I my brother's keeper? He says, I'm not the keeper, you are. But in point of fact, the royal dati is false, and I suspect the shomer achi is also false, because the, false. the answer is yes, we are responsible for the other. In, in point of fact, in the Garden of Eden, the only responsibility the human being had in the Garden of Eden was, in the words of the Torah, we avda ulashamra, to work it and to guard it. And when we're banished from Eden, God places at the door of Eden the Kruvim, to guard the garden, to guard the sacred space. So if you have to guard the sacred space, then presumably we have to be careful to protect that which was created in the image of God, which of course is how the Torah describes the human being in the very first chapter of Genesis. So yes, we are responsible for the other. 
Yes, we are the keepers of the other. So Kayan's first response, apart from the fact that it's simply a lie, he knows very well. But apart from all that, but the excuses are interesting because the Torah is saying, by implication, I think, we are responsible because we can and should know. And secondly, yes, we are responsible to protect that which is sacred. And that's all, our, all of our responsibility. But God's response to Cain is, Sita. here we have that phrase once again, the phrase that God spoke to the woman, what have you done? That phrase is a critical phrase in the book. Probably means, as some commentaries have said, that not the voice of the not the voice of the blood called Christ from the ground, but cold probably is like cold dodihi like hark in the Song of Songs, my beloved is coming. Cold, hark, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. In other words, as I mentioned before, it's not just that you are, have committed a crime, but you have actually uh, involved others in your crime. In this case, the earth itself. You are cursed from the earth, which opened its mouth to take your brother's blood. So you are responsible for your own crime, but your own crime is typically not only your crime. Your own crime, you have entangled and involved others in your crime. Meosita. Now, in both of these cases, what we don't have actually in either case, either in the first story or this story, is the accused confessing. One might say, in fact, given what we saw last week, if we talk about the primal sin of Genesis, there are two primal sins. The first primal sin is, let's say in the first story in the Garden of Eden, is taking what is not rightfully yours. Call it theft, call it trespass of the sacred, because it sounds like that tree in the middle of the garden, God's garden, is God's tree, as it were. And the woman had said, we are commanded not even to, to, go, to go near it, to touch it, or to, to harm it in any way. Reminds us of the verse in the Torah later when it comes to sacred objects and sacred space. Don't come in contact with the sacred if you're not in the appropriate state, or if that's a place that's forbidden to you. So two primal sins. One is trespass, one is theft. That's one primal sin. But the other primal sin is non-confession, not taking responsibility. We can only wonder what might have happened if the human being had taken responsibility. And it's interesting that that's the story of the Garden of Eden and the failure of confession of course, it plays out in so many ways in the Bible. But just very briefly, I wanted to segue for one moment into one story, which speaks of two sins, but clearly focuses on the sin of non-confession. And that's the story that's found in the 15th chapter of the first book of Samuel, Shmuel Aleph, a very well-known chapter, probably to most, if not all of us. That's the story in which King Saul, king of Israel, was commanded to obliterate and destroy Amalek. God remembers what Amalek did when you left the land of Egypt in chapter 15, says God, and 
God through the prophet Samuel uh, instructs Saul, King Saul, to completely destroy Amalek. Men, women, children, all the animals. I'm not getting into what we make of that uh, command, but that is the command. Have no mercy. Lo tachmol alav. Amalek is seen as evil incarnate. Lo tachmol alav. Utterly destroy them and all the animals. And King Saul uh, goes out to um, fulfill the command, actually. He actually wants, it would appear, to fulfill this command perfectly well. As we read through the chapter, um, it says in the next several verses that God saw mustered the troops of Aishamash or Ta'am. He warns the Kani, descendants of Yitro, to depart from Amalek. They live amongst the Amalekites. And uh, he doesn't want to hurt anybody that's not under the command. And he remembers the kindnesses of Yitro when we left Egypt. Those two stories in the Torah come one after the next, in chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Exodus. So he, apparently he intends to fulfill the, the command. And he goes to war against Amalek, as we read several verses down. And it says, keep going down and um, keep going. And the God and says, Saul destroyed out the Amalekites, right? And then in this verse, verse number nine, Saul and the people had compassion, had mercy. Or perhaps the word means just simply to spare. Saul and the people spared the king, whose name is Agag, and the best of the flock, the best of the sheep, the lambs, those things of value, they did not destroy. They destroyed only that which was cheap and worthless. That's the story. So what we have over here, whatever we may think of this, we have in the text is a failure to carry out the command. When I was teaching the book of Samuel, I pointed out that the idea of having compassion on the strong and no compassion on the weak is precisely the quality that God detests in Amalek. Amalek in the Bible always attacks the vulnerable, the people on the margins, the people who have doubts, the people who have no protections, whether it's Haman, whether, whether it's Amalek of chapter 17, whether it's the Amalekites of chapter 30 of 1 Samuel who attack a deserted city, et cetera, et cetera. They attack you when you are weak and tired. That's what the Torah says. So Saul was acting like a good Amalekite in fighting the Amalekites. In, in, in short, even though he has successfully, he's won the war, but he has failed to carry out the command. And now as we read the story, and what he's done is he's taken those things that are forbidden to him, explicitly forbidden to him, he has taken. The chief stuff, not he alone, Saul and the people. But Saul is mentioned first in verse number nine. Now as we scroll down through the chapter, keep going down, further down, down, down. God speaks to, keep going. God speaks to Samuel, keep going down. Stop, stop, stop right there. So Samuel goes to Saul and asks, uh, Saul, what did you do? And Saul says to Samuel, me'amaleki heviyum. They, the people, what are these animals, Samuel says? What's with the animals? The people had pity and spared the best of the animals in order to sacrifice to your God. The rest of which we have destroyed. 
we have proscribed, destroyed the rest. So there are two things. First of all, he says the people. The text didn't say the people. The text earlier said Saul and the people. But here it, Saul says the people did it, and then he gives a justification, which is to bring sacrifices. The remainder, he says, we have destroyed. Note that when he talks about destroying, he puts it the we. We destroyed the rest. They spared the best. And then on top of that, he justifies it. They did it, he says, in order to bring sacrifices. And the question is, what is wrong with this picture? So we have two things. We have the violation of taking that which you should not take. And then we have the failure to take responsibility. The focus of the chapter is on the failure to take responsibility. And that's the very next verse. Let me tell you what God said to me. It says, Saul, speak. And now we have verse number, next verse. But Yom Shmuel, Samuel said to Saul, you may be small in your own eyes. You're the head of the tribes of Israel. You were anointed as king. God sent you on a path. God commanded you to destroy Amalek. Why did you not obey? Literally, shamata b'kol Hashem. Why did you not obey or hear? In this case, obey God's voice. Why do you turn towards the spoil? You, you, singular, you. And notice the main accusation, when you read this, you can't help but thinking of what God said to Adam in the Gan Eden story. Why did you, what does God say to Adam? God says, you listened to her voice. You didn't listen to my voice. You listened to her voice. That's the accusation. And Saul still has a chance, perhaps, to make it right. But Saul says to Samuel, Asher Shomati, but I did obey. I did listen. I did go on the path. I did destroy most of them. I only spared the king. I destroyed Amalek. The people took to sacrifice. So he repeats it. He was given a chance. He repeats his excuse. And Samuel says to Saul, do you think God wants sacrifices as much as obedience as to listen? The sacrifices are fine if there's obedience. It's a nice practice to reinforce a sense of uh, commandedness, a sense of fidelity, but he can never replace it. And your sin, says Samuel to Saul, is tantamount to idolatry. And therefore God has rejected you. So here we have a story actually, and it's very striking. The parallels are striking. And the point, of course, what Samuel says to Saul on top of everything else is the idea that the people did it, but not you, in your case, is particularly egregious because you are the leader of the people. What does it mean to say that the people sinned and the king is innocent, but the king takes responsibility for the people? The, the leader takes responsibility for what all the underlings do. That's by nature of leadership. And I would say by extension, it's true of everybody that it's not appropriate to say so-and-so did it, I'm innocent. Even if so-and-so did it, it doesn't typically clear me of responsibility. And that's the point over here. And what's interesting is, and another parallel, and I can't get into this now too much, but the point is that over here in this chapter, Samuel ends up saying to Saul, God has rejected you as king. The term that is used in the chapter, and I can't get into the details of it, though it's extraordinarily interesting, um, 
uh, is God has regretted. God has changed God's mind. God wants to go a new path. That's exactly the same verb that's used in chapter six of Genesis when God says, since the world is bad, holy evil, and God regretted that God had created the human and God decides to start the world all over again from the person of Noah. So you have in both of these stories, a God who wants or agrees to do something and then we go to plan B, in the first instance, the Torah plays off which in turn plays off eights. So the story of the eight Sadat is the formative story in Genesis. It leaves us in a very bad direction and requires a, a new start. And over here, when it comes to Saul, his inability to say he says later, it's too late. He says, yes, I sinned. I was afraid of the people. I obeyed the people. He doesn't really get it. When one studies the story of Saul, one asks the question, is he simply lying? Or in some deep sense, he doesn't really understand what he's done wrong. Let me stop here for a moment to take comments or questions. I see that Kathleen has a question. Yes, Kathleen. Uh, God wanting obedience ahead of sacrifice. It reminds me of, I mean, it reminds me of Isaiah. Is this the fast that I want? Is it the same kind of thing that uh, uh, putting ritual ahead of, ahead of uh, praising God? Well, I would say, in a short, my short answer to that would be yes. I think that is the point. I think that, and I think it goes beyond Isaiah. It's certainly that what you quote, of course, is the Haftorah of, uh, of uh, Yom Kippur. Very powerful Haftorah of Yom Kippur. It's not really about the fasting. The fast is a way to pause in our lives and to think the path that we want to take. And Yishayel spells it out very clearly taking care of the needy, clothing the naked. Um, he spells it out in no uncertain terms. So I, I would say yes. I would think that, um, and again, I'm not a theologian, but uh, I would say that what emerges from the story here and from many places in the Bible, sorry, from the prophetic writings, we believe in, 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 a, uh, in a practice. The practice, because without the practice, just keeping it, we, 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 we want to be compassionate. But the question is, okay, you want to be compassionate. How does that play out in your life? And Nalacha is a path, basically, a direction uh, which moves us uh, in, in, in certain ways. It, it, certain, in, in the halachic system, there are minimal, minimal requirements, and that minimal requirements are grounding for even a deeper, deeper commitments. Right? But to have the sacrifice, the ritual, without the, the basic grounding is not just uh, not enough, but I would say from the prophetic standpoint, it's kind of abomination. They, they said, why, why bother with the sacrifice altogether? Because you're missing the point. Actually, if you ask Shayal the question, and I think it's what Samuel says in this chapter, he calls it idolatry. It's a confusion of ends and means. Right. The sacrifice is a means to an end. It's one means and there are other means but it's never an end in itself. And that's what Samuel says. Chata kesa meri, your behavior is tantamount to, 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 to trafim, to, to, to idolatry, because that's what idolatry is. It's giving something a, a permanent status or, a, or an ultimate status 
when actually it's just a means to an end. So I think your point is well taken. And actually, it's very appropriate given this time of the year, since we started Srikot last night and we talk about Yom Kippur as the end point, that's exactly the Haftorah of Yom Kippur. It's from Shayal, exactly that chapter. Thank Why you. did you not see that we're fasting? Says God, I see very well. I don't actually care about that very much. I care about the other stuff. Does anybody else have a comment or question? Sandra, yes? I can't, you're muted. All right, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question. Um, Saul does ultimately say Hatati. And um, we know that in the David story, after he sees and takes Bathsheba, he's doing a sin, he takes, he's, it's a theft of something he's not supposed to have. Um, and, uh, and then he actually has Uriah, her husband, killed. Um, he ultimately falls on his face and says, Khatati. one might say that was too late also. If we're saying here, Saul, in the face of Samuel's anger and, and mis you know, really, he, I can't even imagine how, how wroth Samuel was. It's sort of a combination of God's anger and his own anger. But um, why, I guess my question is, given what we know is gonna happen with David with a, an awful double sin, and then a chatati falling on his face. And earlier here in chapter 15, we have, it's a pretty bad sin, but he does also ultimately say chatati. I guess my question is, does God, does the Torah absolutely um, have no consideration for a learning curve? I mean, Saul is just like with, um, I, I would have to say it's somewhat analogous to Cain um, killing. He isn't ultimately killed. Um, he is set to wander, Navanad, and he's punished and he's branded and blah, blah, blah. But he had also, he should have known. Here, all of them should have known. Saul should have known. David should have known. David really should have known. And yet, why are you saying, why does the Torah say that it was too late by the time he said the magic word, Hatati? In fact, there are two reasons for it, in my view. First of all, I think that even when Saul says, I sinned, he, he, he makes an excuse. I sinned because I was afraid of the people. And he doesn't seem to comprehend that whatever the people do is not an out for the king. The king can never say, my underlings did it. That's not an excuse. Someone in a leadership position can never say, the people that work for me made mistakes. They can't say that because that's what it means to be king. What it means to be king is you are responsible, not just to say the words I'm responsible, but you in fact are responsible for what takes place during your period of, of, of leadership. But the deeper answer I would say is this, the point of, and David uh, does uh, suffer plenty after the Bathsheba story, but leaving that aside, the difference between Saul and David in my view, in my reading of Samuel is that Saul actually doesn't at the end of the day, he doesn't actually understand it. He never really gets it. And the point is, he's, because he's incapable of getting it. I mean, why he was chosen in the first place is a wonderful question. The point of the David story, and that story of Bathsheba is, is a tragedy from a different standpoint. And that's why in the Bathsheba story, when the prophet goes to David in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, the prophet doesn't just tell David you did the wrong thing. The prophet starts by saying, let me tell you a case. What do you think of the case? There's a rich man, there's a poor man. The rich man has many, many animals. The poor guy has none, but one that he raises and cherishes. It's like a child. 
And then the stranger comes to town and the rich man takes the one animal of the poor man and prepares it for the stranger. What do you make of that, David? And David gets exceedingly angry. That person deserves to die because that person has, is ruthless. The person has no compassion. He should also pay four times. He has no compassion. And the prophet says to David, you are that man. And the point of the story is why, why a parable? Because what the parable discloses is the deep truth about David. Unlike Saul, David has a profound understanding of what is right and wrong. The problem with David is not that he doesn't understand. He understands to the end. The problem is he doesn't connect it to, his own, to, to himself. So when you give him a parable about somebody else, he sees it clearly. So the point of that story is you have somebody who is capable of understanding. And since David has other positive sides to him, and since God, in fact, called David my servant, he does God's bidding when he understands it. Um, in that case, he's given a, some kind of reprieve. Now, he suffers plenty. He loses four children, and he loses the kingship temporarily, and the son who should have succeeded him, Absalom, dies, and David's left alone and all that, and terrible. But at the end of the day, the difference, in my view, is that Saul doesn't get it. And when you don't get it, you can't confess because you don't understand what you actually did wrong. In the case of David, he understands it perfectly well. That is the short answer to it. We have to go through. There's a longer answer as well. But at this point, since we're not studying Samuel, though I do love the book, um, we'll have to leave it at that for now. But I think that's the core distinction between them. Um, Rabbi, so if we tiny follow-up, and so if we are taking from these stories uh, things, uh, obviously, to run our own lives and to, to formulate our own thinking, especially in the Aseret, you may have to vote. So, um, so then the understanding, you would say, it's the deep understanding that's the precursor to the fast, the, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, turning ourselves uh, inside out, wearing sackcloth and ashes. It's the understanding that precedes falling on the, our face. Is that, right. I would is say that, that what, it's what the Talmud yeah. says, hakarat that's what I talk about in the time. Okay. It's recognition of what is wrong is critical. And recognition okay. is, means really deeply trying to understand what I did wrong and the implications of it, which is not an easy matter, obviously. Because mm -hmm. um, as you see with David, David sees very clearly what the other guy does wrong. And he actually is outraged by it. His moral outrage, but he can't see it about himself because we all don't see ourselves. We see the other very clearly. And it's much more difficult to get a handle on ourselves for all kinds of reasons. So I think that recognition of the mistake is what is critical. And that leads me into the main focus of today's uh, session. Okay, Rabbi there is also the issue of the snake, yes, being punished, being that it's on the ground, constantly reminded of no more Gan Eden, there will be no attempt at lofty dialogue. It will, you know, his attempt to reach God, that they were pawns uh, even. So he is very much punished uh, and limited. Well, the human being never goes back to the Garden of Eden. The story of the Garden of Eden is a place we can't get into and the search then becomes the search for the alternative. punished is what I'm saying. Because they, they no longer can have the dialogue with well, God. That's punishment of death, the punishment of limitation. There's all kinds of punishments. There's a punishment of pain. That's what's common to the man and the woman in, in this pain. Etzev, which plays off the word AIDS. Mm -hmm. Etzev, there's a lot of pain in life. 
you know, we're, we're born crying and we often leave crying. And the fact is, and there's plenty of crying in between. So the fact of the matter is, what the Torah is interested in is, of course, not the uh, scientific, scientific account of how the human was created. The Torah has zero interest in that. What the Torah is interested in is an understanding human possibility. That's what the book is about. It's about who we are, trying to come to terms with it and to accept it, actually, to accept our own lim limitations, which are so many, and to try to figure out in the limited time that we have, how we can uh, make both best use of that, how we can connect up to that which is beyond us, the connection to, to the divine, how we can, even as we affirm our, our, our humanity, connect to that which, which is beyond, which is infinite. And the claim the Torah makes is that the human being can, in fact, connect to the infinite. We can't be infinite, but we can connect to it. That's, that's the claim, that's the point of this first story. Eden is the place in which we are banished, we're not going back there. Now the question is, can we live in this world, in the world of pain, in the world what the, what the Kabbalistic text called Ahmad the Shikra, a world of falsehood, and boys in a world of falsehood, and somehow try to live the moral life in a world of falsehood, that's all. And understanding that the falsehood is not just out there in one particular segment, the falsehood is everywhere, including in ourselves, and to try to come to figure that out, to come to terms with it, and to try to make it better. That I think is what these days are about. And that's what the book of Genesis is about. And I would say that we focused last week on this phrase, me'osita, which is what God says to the woman. The focus is the woman because it's about, it's not about, yes, the man violated, the man was commanded. He's not even a man at that point. He's not a man until the woman's created. He's the earthling, he's the other. But yes, there's a violation of a command. But the other is much more interesting. It's what the snake does to us. It's how the snake uh, enables us or causes us in some sense to see the world differently. That's the problem. She sees this tree differently after the snake talks to her. Suddenly it is a, a source of wisdom, a source of knowledge. It's not clear she even knew it was the tree of knowledge to begin with. But suddenly she sees this, she sees that, and she sees it's a source of delightful knowledge. And then she includes others in this as well. So that's the, the focus of it. The male seat, that critical phrase is what God says to the Isha, what have you done? And of course, what she's done is not just she's eaten herself, but what she's done is she's enabled other people to eat. She, she gave him to eat. It doesn't excuse him because as God says, okay, she told you, but I told you differently. But it also doesn't excuse her apparently. And that's what's interesting. She could have said to God, look, I gave it to him. Who told him to eat it? Who told him to eat it? He was commanded not, the fact that I offered it, okay, so what? But I didn't cause him to eat it because he should not have listened. No, the Torah doesn't say that. The Torah doesn't go there. The Torah says you're both guilty. You're both responsible, both of you. So that's the point. And now we come to what I wanted to focus on in the remaining time. And I'm not going to finish it today, unfortunately, but we'll continue next week, just before Rosh Hashanah, on a different word. The word of last week was the word asa, to do. What have you done? But there's another word that is a very significant word in the second half of Genesis, and that's the word lehakir. 
Now the they talk about hakara tach, a recognition of the sin, hakara. And the word hakara comes up in several stories in the second half of the book of Genesis. So I wanted to begin this now to talk about recognition and what recognition is all about. And the first time I think we come to the word hakir in any significant sense in the book of Genesis is in the story when, uh, of Yaakov uh, pretending to be his brother Esau, standing in for Esau, dressing up like Esau. It was at the uh, encouragement of his mother, Rebecca, who tells him to do it. And she dresses him in the Seirizim in the, with, the, with, the, uh, with the goatskins. And she prepares the food that Isaac loves. And Jacob stands in front of his father, Isaac, who is blind. And he brings him the food that Isaac had sent Esau to get, to hunt and to bring back food. And Yitzchak is suspicious because the son he thinks is Esau has come back very quickly. Who is this in front of me? I told Esau to go, but Yitzchak is not sure it is Esau. And then he says to Yaakov, who pretends to be Esau, who are you? I am Esau, your oldest son. Come eat, father, so you give me the blessing. And Yitzchak says in chapter 27 of Rashid, how come you're back so quickly? How come you're back so quickly? And, he, and says Yitzchak, says Isaac, Pastor, right, so, because uh, God granted me good fortune, God chanced it before me, which is not something that Esau would ever say, not necessarily because he wouldn't use God's name, but because he's a professional hunter. It's not a matter of chance. He's a Yodeya Tzayi, he's skilled. Didn't just happen before me, chance before me. So Isaac is very suspicious. Come, let me feel you, my son. Let me touch you, because Esau is very hairy. Jacob is smooth. And of course, they prepared for that eventuality. His mother has dressed him up with the skins of the goats. And in the verse, he touches him, he feels him. I call, call Yaakov, the voice is the voice of Jacob. Sounds like Jacob. The hands are the hands of Esau. And the next verse, what is, we scroll down to the next verse, which is, he did not recognize him and he blessed him. He tricked his blind father. Now the story is very complicated for many reasons. One is because at the end of the day, actually, the blessing of Abraham, the covenantal blessing, not the blessing for the immediate present, but the long-term blessing for the future, which Isaac has, is a blessing that actually can't go to Esau. Esau has married Canaanite women. Esau thinks about the present moment. Esau doesn't think about the future. So the blessing is not right for Esau. Nonetheless, the way Jacob took it is highly problematic and results in all kinds of problems which change the direction of Jacob's life. Yaakov is forced to run away, and Yaakov finds himself, we find Yaakov in chapters 29, 30, 31, in the house of Lavan. Without getting to all the details of that story, obviously, that's a whole set of sessions. But what's interesting is that the house of Lavan, the word of the Hakir resurfaces. In this story, it's Jacob who did not 
allow his father to see the truth, who was able to fool his father, to trick his father, the Loki Kiro, he couldn't recognize it. And then he finds himself in a house where it's all about non-recognition. And what I refer to is not just the fact that Lovin tricks Yaakov, who works seven years for Rachel, the younger daughter, and arranges a marriage feast at night with drinking and darkness. And when he wakes up next morning, he looks alongside him and behold, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. Why did you trick me? But we don't do in this town, we don't have the younger supplant the older, work another seven years. Not getting to the details of all that. But what's interesting is that later in the story, Jacob has to run away. Jacob has become wealthy, manipulating the fox of Rabban. Now he's in danger. And he summons his wives in chapter 31 to the field. And he says to his wives, I had a dream. God appeared in the dream. I see how Rabban has cheated you. Go home, go home, run away. And he calls his two wives, Rachel and Leah, to the field to tell them, and maybe even to get their permission or their, or their uh, acceptance of what he's saying, their support. And what they say in chapter 31, keep going down in chapter 31, keep going down. Now there's several verses down. Keep going down. Keep going down, down. Keep going. Another five, six verses. Keep going. That's it, right there. Rachel and Leah said to Jacob, do we have a portion in our father's house? He regards us as nachriot. What is nachriot? Nachriot, nachri, is an outsider. One might say one that is not recognized. The, the lahakir, the root of the word lahakir is nun kafresh, nachriot. We live, we are in an environment, a society, where nobody takes responsibility for the next one. Our father sells us. People are instruments to be used. You use the other. Notice the play on nachri, nun kafresh, and the Hebrew verb mem kafresh, to sell, machar. Our father sells. The house of Lavan is a place where people are commodities. People are instruments for my purpose. It's true how Jacob treats Jacob. It's true how Lavan treats uh, his daughters. It may even be true of how the wives of Jacob treat Jacob. Remember the story where they exchanged the mandrakes for the rice to sleep with Jacob and Leah rushed out to greet Jacob. Come to me tonight. I've rented you out with the mandrakes of my son, right? with the mandrakes of my son. I've rented you out. Everything's for sale. That's the way you find Jake. And then afterwards, when he runs away, Lovin says, why do you steal my gods? Rachel has stolen the idols. Says Jacob later on, Haker, Haker Lecha, recognize, see if you can find where they are. And of course he can't find where they are. Why can't he find where they are? Because Rachel has hidden them. Where has Rachel hidden the trophim in chapter 31? Again, a play in the word Lachir on the car, on the, on the, on the blanket of the, of, of the camel blanket, car. It's a place in which everybody doesn't recognize the other. Everything's for sale, everything's a commodity, everything's an instrument. That's where Jacob finds himself, sadly, 
after having taken the blessing. And that's a story which changes Jacob's life because Jacob has not one wife but four. Jacob has children from different wives and Jacob favors one over the other. His beloved Rachel is not the woman he marries first, is not the mother of most of his children. And that colors the entire story from this point on to the end of Breshit. And what I wanted to focus on is this verb lakir. As we all know, the story of Joseph, which really in earnest picks up in chapter 37. And again, we're not studying the book of Genesis. We will, I will be teaching Genesis after the holidays, continuing with the beginning with the Isaac Jacob stories. Hopefully we can move through the book of Genesis. There are always a hundred new things. But in any event, story of Joseph is chapter 37. Joseph is a dreamer. He also was a tattletale. He informs his father about negative things about the brothers, but he tells his dreams. He has dreams. He tells them to his brothers, and the dreams are obviously easily interpreted. Namely, you will bow down to me. And not only you will bow down to me, says Joseph, in my dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to me as well. And this elicits from the brother a very deep hatred. By Yosifu old snow, they increase their hatred on his dreams and his words. It's bad enough that you have the dream. Many things that we believe is best keeping to ourselves. But Joseph doesn't keep it to himself. He feels a compunction, or maybe out of an innocence or naivete, to tell his dreams to the others. And his father recognizes, after he tells the dream to the brothers and the father, the dream of the sun, the moon, and the stars, he tells them both. Because presumably the son is Jacob in the dream. His father rebuked him. What is this dream? Are we going to, me and your mother, and my bow down to you? And the brothers were jealous, and father remembered. Aviv Shem, next verse, the father remembers the dreams. And then Jacob attempts in this chapter to make peace. He sends Joseph to his brothers. And the problem is, he says to Joseph, but your brothers are in Shem, the city of brotherly love, I would say, the city where the brothers avenge the honor of their sister Dina. Problematic story as well, but at least they show concern for their sister. Says Jacob, are your brothers in Shechem? Go and go and go and inquire of their welfare, inquire of their peace, shalom. So it sounds like Jacob wants to make peace. Go. And, and Joseph says, he named me, I will go. I will go. I'll go, Father. But the problem is that by the time Joseph gets there, they've left Shechem. They've gone elsewhere. Somebody finds Joseph and says they've left. They've gone to a different place, Dotan, which means quarrel or trouble. And then the Torah says they saw him from a distance. They saw Joseph from a distance. And before he gets there, they conspired to kill him. They said one to the other, the dreamer is coming. Let's take him, let's throw him into a pit. And we'll say a, an animal killed him. Let's see what becomes of his dreams. The Nirem Mayuch keeps scrolling down. It's what becomes of his dreams. Scroll down. So, Ruvain speaks up in the story. Later on in the chapter, keep going. Ruvain says, don't, 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 don't shed blood. Rather, throw him into the pit. Throw him into the pit. And Ruvain is thinking to bring him back to his father. That's his intention. But that's not what he says to the brothers. He doesn't say, I want to bring him back to his father. He says, we shouldn't kill him. 
rather throw him into the pit. If you throw him into the pit, what's going to happen to him? He will die in the pit. It's in the desert. There's no water. But Ruben distinguishes between my killing and my causing death. When Joseph comes, they strip him of his coat and they throw him into the pit and they take away his coat first and the pit and uh, the pit has no water. He will die in the desert. And they sit down to eat and behold the caravan they see in the distance. And then Judah speaks up in the following two verses. Why should we kill our brother? There's no profit in killing our brother. We are killing him, says Judah. I don't distinguish between causing his death and killing him. We're killing him. That's the intention. And the brothers here means they're thinking about it. Doesn't necessarily mean they accept it. He says the brothers agreed, not necessarily. They might have agreed. They're considering it, but in the interim, as the Rashbam explains, in the interim, other traders come by and they pull Joseph from the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 silver, uh, silver pieces. They brought him down to Egypt. Reuven goes back to the pit. He wants to bring him back to his father. No, nobody's there. And he tears his clothing. He says, the boy is missing. And as for me, what am I to do? So they took the coat of Joseph, Ketonet Yosef. They took his coat and they slaughtered a goat. And they dipped the coat in the blood of the goat. And they sent it to their father. And they brought it and said, we found this. Hakerna, do you recognize it? Is it the code of your son or not? And of course, only one such code exists. He, he recognized it. He said, the code of my son, a wild animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn by a beast. Tarof, taraf, Yosef. And they try to console him. All the children, maybe the, the, the wives, the grandchildren, he refuses to be consoled. I will go down to the grave in mourning. Meanwhile, Joseph was sold in Egypt to Potiphar. So here we have an interesting story. Haker, father, do you recognize it? And of course, they're fooling their father, they're tricking their father. They actually don't know where Joseph is. They have no idea where Joseph is because he was sold before they had a chance to sell him. They don't know. But the dipping of the, of the blood in, in the coat of the goat. And what do we have over here? We have the children tricking their father in the same way that their father tricked his father with the medium of, this, of the ezim of the goat. So in other words, they're following, one might say they're being very traditional. They're following in the footsteps of their father. Jacob, who tricked his father, who could not recognize Lohi Kiro. And now with Jacob, he recognizes the cult, but he doesn't recognize the situation. Father, do you recognize the cult? It's interesting, by the way, and before we start with the main topic I wanted to get to, the main text, two texts actually, in Genesis, probably will take us next week. On Yom Kippur, we have confessions, many confessions actually. And one of the lines that we say, we have confessions even as Yom Kippur before it begins actually, before we pray the afternoon prayer and the tradition of saying a confession as we begin Yom Kippur, then in all the prayers of Yom Kippur is the long confession, is the short confession, 
And then the Ewa, there's a different confession. Maybe we'll talk about that in the last session between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. About the, the last confession of Yom Kippur. What's interesting is we say in the confessions, we are not brazen. To say before you, God, God, our God and God of our ancestors. We never make the claim we did not sin. And now we have two texts. One is, but we have sinned. In truth, we have sinned. We're not making any claims we haven't sinned. That's one text. Then there's another text. But we and our ancestors have sinned. Why do we mention the ancestors? I understand saying I sinned. I got that. I confess. I have sinned. I got that. What does it mean to say And what's interesting is that in the Torah, when the Torah speaks of confession, and it speaks of confession in a few places. And one of the places it speaks of confession is in the book of Vayikra, chapter 26, what we call the Tochacha, the admonition. If you keep the Torah, things will be good. God will walk in your, in your midst, etc., and blessings. But if you fail to obey, fail to listen, and the Torah speaks about the sevenfold punishment. At the end of that section, it talks about return to the land and, this, and the conditions upon which you can ultimately return to the land. One is that the land will lie fallow for the Sabbath years you did not keep. Coming to a Shemitah year, by the way, this next year is the year of Shemitah and Jewish, we plan to examine Shemitah very carefully. But uh, in addition to that, we have the verse that in exile, they will confess their sin and the sins of their ancestors in the trespass that they trespassed against me. Let me see if I can find that verse. Where is that verse? Chapter 26. Not finding it? Here it is. Chapter 26 of verse number 40. What does that mean? There you have it. We have sinned and our ancestors have sinned. What is, what is that confession? We're confessing the sins of other people. We have a tough enough time. Actually, it's more difficult to confess your own sin, obviously, but what is the point? And I would make a suggestion about it in the context of Genesis, which is that People make mistakes all the time. But sometimes, actually, our justification is that, and it is somewhat of a justification, that I'm operating within a certain environment. I'm operating within a certain community. This is, what the, this is how the community functions. That's a given. And then within that community, I make mistakes, et cetera. 
And I think what this, what this verse suggests to us and what our confession of Yom Kippur suggests is that in thinking about where I am, I should think about not just where I am, but think more broadly about the world in which I function. That I have a responsibility to think about the world, I would say the worlds in which I function. The tradition that's come down to me, we have, we have a, a, a tradition of an ongoing interpretive tradition. And therefore that means ongoing interpretive tradition means that among other things, we are thinking about within the tradition itself, where we see problems, where we see difficulties. And then the question is how to deal with those difficulties. But the point is, it's not a justification to say, yes, I act this way, because you know, that's, that's, that's what we've done. That's what we've done is hardly an excuse. So the idea of to, to recognize the hakir is much broader in a sense. It entails much more than just looking at myself. It entails looking at a much bigger picture. It's true. This has been going on for a long time that the brothers who um, send the goat to their father as a means of deception. And yes, what you can say is they carry on the tradition of Jacob. He did exactly the same thing. Okay, his mother told him to do it, but we know that doesn't matter. His mother told him to do it, so she's complicit. It doesn't excuse him, obviously. And the question is, how do you stop this? How do, you, how do you make a change in something which is so deep? And that change actually, and the critical chapter in Genesis from the standpoint of plot is actually the next chapter in Genesis, the story of Judah and Tamar, which I've taught many times. It's one of the great stories of the, of the Bible actually. And in that story, and we're not gonna get into the whole story, but in that story, we have also the question of recognition as a critical factor. The story of Judah and Tamar, we'll, we'll look at it next week. We'll start with it next week. And then there's one more confessional story, more than one, but there's one main confessional story in Genesis that poses a lot of interesting problems. Because unlike Bible stories, in which things are black and white, nothing in this book is black and white. Everything is complicated. Everything is gray. And it's the world in which we function. So in that story, of course, we know that Judah uh, marries a Canaanite woman, has three children, and marries the first one off to a woman named Tamar. It's chapter 38. And that first son of Judah is, is evil. He's Ra. His name is Er, I in Reish, and the Torah says he's Ra, and God killed him. That's what it says. God slays him. Son number two is instructed by Judah to perform the rite of leverage marriage, which apparently predates the Torah. And that is you marry the wife of the deceased brother and the children in some sense extend the kin lines of the deceased brother. But the second brother, Onan, is not interested in extending the kin lines of this brother. So he refuses to properly consummate the relationship and she can't have children. God sees this and he dies as well. God kills him as well. So we're left with one son. And Judah says to Tamar, whom he suspects as the cause of the death of his two sons, you know, my youngest son, Shela, is, is young still, wait till he grows up. He has no intention of ever permitting him to marry his third son because he blames her for the death of his first two sons. 
But he says to her, go wait in your father's house. He throws her out of the house and she's living in her father's house. She wears the widow's uh, weeds because she's still in a sense engaged to son number three. She can't marry anybody else. She's in a sense engaged, but he has no intention clearly of ever allowing her to marry son number three, whose name is Shelah. Shelah, by the way, means among other things, deception. She's not gonna allow him to marry son number three. Now, of course, in not allowing him to marry son number three, he condemns son number one and son number two. Because the only way to extend their kill lines after their death is through leveret marriage, which he, it will, he forbids. He protects his youngest son at the expense of the older two. Fine. Meanwhile, Judah's own wife dies. And he's consoled immediately. The next murder, Judah's wife dies. By Nahem Yehuda, he's consoled. And right away, was it six months? Was it three months? Was it three minutes? It's the next word. And he goes up with his friend to the sheep shearing. Sheep shearing is a time of great rejoicing. We know it's a time of a lot of drinking. Forget your woes. It's the time when you recognize the success of your uh, of economic endeavors. So it's a time of great rejoicing and you're living in the moment in the sheep shearing, etc. And when she, under, she hears somehow, Tamar hears that he's going to the sheep shearing, she takes off her widow's garments, she puts on a veil, and she stands on the road. She sees that Shayla had already grown up, son number three has grown up. She had not been given to him as a wife, and she understands it will never happen. Now Judas sees her, he mistakes her for a prostitute. Her face is covered, he doesn't recognize her. And he propositions her in the next verse. He doesn't know it's his daughter in the world. He says, what will you, she says to him, what will you pay me? This is my business. What are you going to pay me? He says, I will send you a goat. I will send you a goat, the reappearance of the goat. She says, I need a pledge. This is not, it's a cash business. I need a pledge. Not a, not, no credit. She's really saying to herself, are you kidding? This guy's been promising to send me something for the last 18 years and nothing ever happens. It happens to be you. And therefore, I need a pledge. What do you want, he says? Your seal, your cord, which means probably your coat, and your stamp, symbols of your leadership. So he gives them to her, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Then she goes on her way, takes off the veil, puts on the widow's garments, goes back home. Meanwhile, he wants to get back these staff, the seal, and the uh, cult, symbols of leadership, symbols of kingship. He sends his friend to find them. And we'll read a couple of verses now. We'll pick this up next week. This is actually critical in our topic, topic of confession. This is the critical story. And Judas sent his friend to get the, to bring back, he sends him with the goat, sends the goat to bring back the staff, the seal, the pledge, the Aravon, but he can't find her. He asked the people of the town, is there a cult prostitute around here? No such person exists. So he returned to Judah. He says, I can't find her. Satia, I can't find her. And the people say this person never existed in the first place. Now we have a Yoma Yehuda and Judah said, let her keep it. Lest we become lavuz, an embarrassment, lest we be embarrassed. Behold, I sent the goat with you, you could not find him. 
I just wanted to stop at this point to reflect the moment on this verse. And then next week to pick this up and talk about recognition. First of all, the question is, what Judah has, what she, what Tamar has in her possession are the symbols of leadership. Not a small thing. Coat, the staff, the seal, symbols of kingship, actually. So Judah wants them back. But how much does he want them back? He doesn't want them back enough to search after one day, because if we ask too many questions, people will say, why is the guy so interested in finding about this prostitute? That could be embarrassing. So he's going to give up after one day. It means it's not that important to him. And we know why it's not so important to him, because there's no leadership demonstrated in this chapter. Yes, he told son number two to marry her, but after that, forget about it. He doesn't see a responsibility towards the whole family. And in addition to that, one of my favorite verses, behold, I sent the goat and you couldn't find her. You couldn't find her. So keep searching. No, no. I did my job. I sent the goat. You couldn't find her. You couldn't find her. The word matzah appears three times over here, and there's no attempt to find her. And it's interesting, if we think about this more broadly, and I'll stop with this observation, if we take the Rashbam's understanding of the story of the sale of Joseph, which in my view is a simple reading of the text, the brothers never saw Joseph, never. He was sold before Reuben goes back to the pit. If they had sold him, Reuben wouldn't say the boy is missing. Of course he's missing. We sold him 10 minutes ago. No, Reuben knows they're about to sell him. He wants to get him out of the pit and bring him back to Jacob. Goes back to the pit, he's missing. So they didn't actually sell him. But he's missing. He's a nenu in the words of the book of Genesis. If he's a nenu, if he's missing, then what do you do when a soldier is missing? What do you do when a child is missing? Search. You keep searching. No one is searching. And that's the point of Judah over here as well. You look for a day, okay, you did your job. Your fault, maybe, you couldn't find her. I did what I had to do. There's no attempt to find. There's an abdication of responsibility over here. Who's gonna get this guy to do the right thing? Not just to do the right thing. Who's gonna get him to, to be able to see where he actually stands, what his responsibilities are, what's been going on in this family over two generations, who can do this? And the answer is gonna be this outsider, the ultimate outsider, this woman who actually changes the whole book of Genesis. We don't know who she is, we know her name, her name is Tamar. But we don't know who she is, but she's gonna be the one to say enough. And that's what you have to say. Enough with the deception. It can't be this way. You gotta put an end to it. So I have the ultimate deception the deception to end all deceptions. That's the story over here, after which point he will recognize. And the recognition of Judah in this chapter is essential for the rest of the book. It's what allows the community, or in this case, the family, to move forward together. So to summarize what we have, we first revisited the verb to do of the historian, rooted in the story of the Garden of Eden that we saw last week, how that plays out. And this week, it's more about recognition. To recognize is much more broadly to understand all the aspects, all the elements of what drove me to do what I did, the implications of what I did, the community or family in which I function, the non-justification of communities that do wrong things.
There's no justification for that. We have to revisit it, try to correct it as best we can. All that is implicit, I think, in the, in the verb to recognize. So next week, we'll see how that plays out in Judah Tamar's story and Judah. And then the last chapter of Genesis where we have an interesting confession. And like most of Genesis, nothing is ever black and white. Nothing is all good or all bad. So we'll analyze that. And then the last week, I'd like to talk about public confession and connect that to the Yom Kippur service, service of the high priest and, and confession much more broadly. So that'll be the, um, that's the plan for the next two sessions. So if you have any questions, um, you can send me an email, dsilberatrisha.org. I'll be happy to try to respond. And uh, we also have other classes going on. It's not too late to join. Looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful, wonderful class. And thank you. And on Facebook and on Drisha Live for participating in Drisha's learning community. We really, really appreciate all that you contribute to what we're learning here. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in other classes of the Elisman this week. You can get more information and register on our site. You can also catch up with any classes that you might have missed in our audio library. And we are on for next week for this class, same time, same place. We look forward to seeing you all back again. Be well.